Elizabeth, thanks very much for coming to talk. I noticed, which I didn't know, that you arrived at Hong Kong U as a, as a mature student. I know, but I wasn't that old, actually. I was three years, three years out of school. Yeah. I did my A-levels. I did quite well. And actually, I was uh, admitted to the university. But I was going through a very rebellious stage in my life, and I decided I didn't need to come to university. So I went and taught secondary school for three years. Right. And I realized that there's uh, no point being rebellious. So I came back to university in 71. It's a curious sort of rebellion. I mean, imagine I'm rebelling. I'm going to go off and be in Woodstock and generally hang loose. Right, right, But actually, right. rebelling to go teach school, that doesn't seem terribly rebellious. Right, but life is very messy. It's mm. not always consistent, right? Yeah. What did you teach? I taught history and English. Right. Yeah. In a secondary school? In a secondary school. It was a private secondary school. Mm. And uh, I had a great time. I'm, I'm still in touch with the students from that school. This was 1968. And, I mean, this is the interesting because you are quoted somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, oh as my saying gosh. that you'd hit the age of 30 before you knew any Hong Kong history, that That's Hong Kong right. had That's somehow right. escaped you. Right. Well, when we were in secondary school, there was no Hong Kong history, right? Right. And for my A-levels, I did um, Tudor England, 16th century Europe, and Elizabethan England. So I knew a lot about England. God, that's amazing. Nothing about Hong Kong. Right. And uh, nobody else seemed to be particularly interested in Hong Kong. I think 71, 72 was a big change. Uh, I think with the, I mean, the governments, you know, doing underlying rock and mm -hmm. all these things, you know, there was really building up a, a sense of place in Hong Kong right. at that time. But then you did graduate. Did you, was your graduate work immediately into Hong Kong history? Or no, what? no, no, no. I tried to avoid doing the China courses mm. when I was an undergraduate. So I continued doing the European ones, doing Russia, anything that was sort of away from China. So what did you do as a graduate? I mean, because you did an MPhil and a PhD. Ah, but when I did my MPhil, I knew I wanted to do postgraduate studies, right? right? And then I was told that I really, if, I wanted to, if I wanted to continue doing European history, I'd have to have other European languages. Mm. And the only edge I had was I had Chinese, right? My Chinese was pretty strong. So my, uh, my MPhil thesis was on Chinese historiography. Right. But I, I put two things together, social Darwinism and Chinese historical thinking, actually. Right. Thinking, historical thinking. And I also realized that if I wanted to do a PhD, having a Chinese edge was not enough, right. right? And the real edge is being in Hong Kong. Sure, yeah. Right. And uh, I got to know people like uh, Carl Smith right. and James Hayes and all the Royal Asiatic Society crowd. Right. And I realized that there's so much to do in Hong Kong, but right? you've had this sense of a completely unplowed field opening in front of you? Uh, also the excitement, not mm. just that I'm a Hong Kong person. Right. I think this is what happened during the 70s, is the feeling that, you know, I'm a Hong Kong person, I'm in Hong Kong, I'm physically here, and I'm emotionally uh, tied to it. I mean, I went into, it went into my uh, historical um, studies on the PhD level, really, uh, the, with passion. And I think that's wonderful. Right. right. The other thing about, about this, isn't it? I found myself thinking about it the other day, that you're at the, at the beginning of a run of women historians in Hong Kong. 
of, of some I think of Mary Turnbull as, as, as Brian, and, and then I think of you, and I think of Ho Pu Yin, I think of uh, Chana Kiching. Uh, yes, Alison. Alison, I mean, yeah. did you, were you conscious of this, of breaking new turf? Actually, no, I didn't want to think of myself as a, his, a, a woman. Right. And in particular, I, I don't like to be considered either as a woman or as a, a historian of women's history. Sure. So even when I wrote about women, I made it quite clear that I was not doing, or I'm not doing, women's history. Mm. So I'm fairly neutral in my gender consciousness. Right. right. But was there a glass ceiling? Did you ever feel that being a woman was a handicap? I think my glass ceiling here was the fact that I didn't have a degree from uh, overseas. Right. And people in the university, uh, although I got my first book out in 1989, mm. which was more than some of my colleagues in the history department at that That's time. That's for sure, yeah. But I didn't, teach a, I didn't get a teaching post for, for many, many years because I think the uh, powers that be felt that I only had a Hong Kong degree or that I only had three Hong Kong degrees. Why, and why not an think, overseas one. Why do you think there was this prejudice? I don't know. I think this is something that, have really that has really fascinated me. They gave me a first class honor yeah. right, when I graduated. And, and I think they knew I was, whatever I did, I did fairly well. I mean, I hate to sound so immodest, and I'm not an immodest person. Right. <laughs> but it, I, mean, it is but I think that, that really, it would really worked against me, not having an overseas degree. Right. Yeah. Is, is that a sense, if you like, of of what the Australians for a long time called the cultural cringe, where I, somehow if it didn't come from London or Europe or America, but was or even Canada, in Australia, or know, even Canada, anywhere, it wasn't anywhere. good enough. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So it's Hong rather Kong, sad. Yeah. Has Hong Kong still got that, this, this sense that somehow we're second best? Uh, I'm not going to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, I, think, I think it's really important. I mean, whatever is the situation now. I think it's really important for employers and for other scholars to look at the work mm. and see what that person is able to produce. Do you feel you, you, you and others who were into Hong Kong studies in, in the 80s and 90s, you, you've created a wave that is continuing to crest? I think so. I think so. I think that's very rewarding for me. Mm. And uh, it's really great when now, I mean, I, I get students coming from different universities in Hong Kong coming to talk about the work on Hong Kong. And I get scholars from all around the world, you know. I mean, some universities that you, less well-known universities right. in Europe or in uh, uh, America writing in and say they want to do something on Hong Kong. And it's, uh, it's very exciting. I remember when I was writing the book I recently published, somebody said to me, well, you've got to explain why it is that this very Hong Kong-based story has got something more than just local significance. Mm. What is it about our town, and I'll say our town, that has got global interest and global significance? I think one of the things about Hong Kong is that it is local, but it is also so global. I mean, it, one of the most exciting things I found about doing my recent book is that you don't look just at Hong Kong itself. You don't look within the physical confines mm -hmm. or the boundaries of Hong Kong. If you look at it from different parts of the world, yeah. and uh, one of the re ways you could do that is because all the archives are outside, yeah. and you can really see Hong Kong from the outside and how important Hong Kong was to the outside world. And I think that's what makes it so, so important. 
that there is, on one level, sort of the local part of it. But on the other hand, the picture is not complete unless you look at the outside, right? From, from the outside. So there is the empire bit, the imperial aspect. There's also the international trade aspect. There is the um, cultural aspect. You see how far Hong Kong movies have reached out, mm. right? Not just you know, Kung Fu movies in, in the West, but you know, even in the 50s and 60s and 70s, a lot of Hong Kong movies were um, very important in Southeast Asia. Right. And I remember the, a lot of the radio programs, right. um, RTHK radio programs, Cantonese radio programs, were broadcast in Southeast Asia. And people will close their shops to listen to certain uh, programs. Because it's, yeah, okay. And very recently, I went to, I was in Penang, mm. and um, my friend's, uh, the buckle of her friend's belt was broken. So we walked past a uh, sort of metal shop, right? Mm. And this guy was banging away at something, and we asked him whether he could change that buckle for him, and he did. And um, he spoke perfect Cantonese. So we chatted away. And I asked him, I said, are you Cantonese? And he says, no. He says, I'm Hokkien. I said, how come you speak such terrific Cantonese? It's very colloquial and very accurate. And he said, I used to listen to the RTHK programs. Oh, good Lord. Cantonese programs. Wow. So he started reading out all these special people that he was sort of a he fan familiar of. With, yeah, right. Yes, right. Yeah. So I think it actually was uh, quite a common phenomenon. So Hong Kong was producing a lot of movies and what we now today call cultural products, mm. newspapers, magazines, and everything, mm -hmm. that really found their way around the world. And people grew up with, with Hong Kong cultural products. Uh, so we're a global city and always have been. Right, in a, in a very sort of trans, transnational way. Yeah. 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 And I think that's something that we should appreciate. Um, and we should be, be really proud of it. And I, I think one of the ways of understanding Hong Kong is to understand this global effect that we have. And you've also got involved in the archive project, now, this idea of trying to get the government finally to make an archive law. Right, is that right. a real sense that without it, our past is simply going to go into an incinerator? Um, but the first thing is, of course, for the moment, I mean, for contemporary, for contemporary purposes, we really need archives for government to be accountable, yeah. right? So that's one thing. But as a historian who loves archives, I mean, can you imagine that 20 years later, we just won't be able to find anything mm. on Hong Kong? I mean, that's, that's gross. I mean, it's, it's obscene, actually, yeah. for a place to have no archive laws, and I, I really hope the government will do something about it. Right, I mean, I, not, not just to you know, collect the archives now, but really train archivists. You know, right. If you have archives with no archivists, no professional archivists, Th that's, and then that's it's the just case a, now with the records office. They have, they, have, uh, they have professional archivists now, but I don't think there is any long term plan for training uh, for trained archivists. But also, there's, there's the, the, the gap in time. I remember a piece I wrote not long back. Uh, I only was able to write it because I had an into a government department where there was a file that thick yes. going back to about 1944. Right. 
No, right. she went back to 1866. Yes. It was this enormous file. Right. And you think, my God, but this is incredibly important but, but stuff. But it's called a working file, you yeah. see. So as long as it's considered a working file, then they don't have to send it to the archi archives. But I, I feel that as long as people know where the files are, I, I, I think I would be grateful for small mercies, right? But the thing that I'm... There are a, a number of people who are doing the archive, the, right, the archive laws. i am actually been working very hard on oral history archives. Yeah. And I, I really love that work. I started doing oral history um, when I was doing Dongwa. Um, but I wrote, the Bank of, I wrote the history of the Bank of East Asia. Right. And I interviewed a lot of people. And I really came to realize that so much of the history cannot be found in paper, right. cannot be found in text, yeah. cannot be found in statistics, mm -hmm. right? And they have to be found in the way people remember things and the way people felt about things. So from that time, I was this is the late 80s and early 90s, I've been doing a lot of oral history. Right. And I do them on all levels. When I was teaching in the history department, I asked my students to do it. And they love it. Right. Uh, to them, by interviewing people who have lived through Hong Kong history, make them feel that Hong Kong history is very close to them. Right. It's very much alive. That history is not a dead thing. That it is a living thing, and they can have access to it, and that they are connected to it. Right. And I just feel that, um, apart from my books and stuff, that's probably one of my greatest achievements. That have stirred up so much interest. So, and you've been in a lead figure, a lead figure in, in all of this. And the one thing that now I'm going to bang my own particular drum here. The one thing I've noticed is nearly always missing is anything about Hong Kong's docks, dockyards, seafarers, shipping, all the stuff that was at the heart of watery Hong Kong in all those years, those decades. That doesn't seem to feature. Why not? I really don't have the answer to that. But I think it's it's really a question that's worth investigating, mm -hmm. particularly because my father was in the shipping business. Right. I think I told you that my father was a shipping contractor and he used to repair uh, ships when they came into port, right? right. So ship, ships used to come in and it took them a long time to load and unload and stuff. So there was a lot of time for doing repair work mm -hmm. and so that was where my father's business was. The, the, it was mainly uh, scraping the bottoms of the right. hull and uh, repainting, um, there's a lot of um, carpentry work. Right. All right, so that was my father's business. And I really would love to... Uh, know more. Know more and maybe write about it. And the other thing is about Ch Chinese seamen. Yes. Yeah, right? Very and close. There's so much... Uh, Hong Kong was such an important hub, recruit, recruitment hub mm. for Chinese seamen. Yeah. And the other group is, of course, the, the boat people in the harbor. Yeah. Right, and we, we really neglect them and they are so first of all such interesting people mm. but they were such an important part of the infrastructure and I think a lot of we owe them a lot yeah yeah and I think people really should look into that so the you future should, I, am, I, I, am. <laughs> I think we should I think we should have a big project mm -hmm. on Hong Kong waters right. right so that would take in the shipping industry it would take in what well, shipping industry is, is it's always easy because you can go to the big shipping companies and mm. ask for funding, right? But it's the small guys. They're yeah, the ones that matter. small people, but they're so much part of the big picture. I mean, the other thing you've been interested in for a long time now is the way in which Hong Kong has been a conduit of people going out into the world. Yes, right. The diaspora. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. 
what drove you to that? Well, I did my uh, PhD on the Dongwa Hospital, mm. right? And the Dongwa Hospital really isn't just a hospital, and it wasn't just a hospital. It was a very important charitable organization. It delivered medical services and so forth, but it really was a um, a spokesman for the Chinese community in Hong Kong in the 19th century. But also took care of Chinese who went out all over the world. Right. Right? It took care of them when they were going through Hong Kong on their way out and also took care of them on their way back. But also took care of them when they were actually outside of Hong Kong. So when I was studying the Dunghua Hospital, I, it was only then that I found out how important Hong Kong was to the migration movement right. of Chinese. Now in the 19th century, Tens of thousands of Chinese went abroad, and particularly those who went out from the Pearl River Delta, right. almost inevitably went through Hong Kong, because mm. Hong Kong had such a, a thriving shipping business. Right. And I think um, in my most recent book, uh, Pacific Crossing, I talked about how Hong Kong could be called an in-between place. Right. Right? And because people who, most scholars who study migration, and most people who think about migration, think of the place of the sending country, yeah. or what is now called the Qiuheng or the Qiaoxiang, and the place of settlements, all right? And they don't pay much attention to what went on in between. And I think the whole process is worth studying. So my book is not so much about the sending place and the place of settlement as two static mm -hmm. entities, but I look at the whole migration process, the flow of people, the flow of money, the flow of goods, the flow of ideas and particularly very importantly I think of religious practices, of social practices, right. of cultural values. So it is really the flow in the diaspora that I emphasize. Right. Do you, do you feel that that in its own way may have had an impact on Hong Kong's sense of self? An in-between place is a hard place to see as being a focus in its own right. It's, it's, like, it's like being a corridor. Right, right. Somehow right. a corridor isn't a room. Right. But what I really hope that people can see is the many level of existence mm. of Hong Kong, right? It could be a level, it could be a corridor, it, be, it could be a home as well, right? And I think what is so important about this in-between place is that it creates a comfort zone too, mm. right? People, strangers who come in don't have to feel like strangers. No, I was suddenly thinking then, because, because I used the word corridor, and going back to your original point about being a scholar of... Uh, Elizabethan and Tudor England, because of course it was at the end of that period that the corridor was invented. Up until then, to get from room A to room B, right, you had to go through right. a room in the middle. Right, and Hong right. Kong is the room in the middle. Right, right. I remember as a, a, an A-level student, mm. my teacher, Mrs. Cavan, whom you right, must Eric know, Cavan, right. yeah. um, when we studied Elizabethan England, we mm. didn't just study um, politics and the economy and, mm. and the Great Armada. We also studied architecture, and we read the uh, religious tracts, right? right. So it was so exciting. You really get the, uh, the depth of the different levels of society. And one of the things we learned about Elizabethan architecture is that you had to go through rooms to get to other rooms, right? right. And that was quite an eye-opener. I still remember my reaction when she talked about it in class, how strange things were at a different time and place, mm. and that a lot of things that we take for granted hadn't been here, and actually the um, provenance had been very short. And I think that is really important for a historian. Elizabeth, thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's a welcome. great note.